there was a really popular television show. Uh, actually, you can still see it. It still streams. It was called The Office. I hear the laughter. I hear the snickers. And it's a pretty funny show. Um, it's a mockumentary, if you will. Um, it's fictional, fictional company named Dunder Mifflin set, in fictionally, set fictionally in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, it's called a mockumentary, actually. Um, and it was really peculiar. Uh, there were some really funny characters that were involved in it. Uh, there were times where uh, the characters in the show and the mockumentary would stop and they would look into the camera and they would tell you how they felt about certain coworkers. Um, and maybe after hearing some, some of them do say or something stupid, they look into the camera with this perplexed look on their face. Sometimes it was funny. Um, sometimes it was inappropriate. Um, they dealt with issues like office politics, downsizing, inefficiency, sexual harassment, lame building exercises, and office romances. The reason I think why people liked it is because it reminded them, it reminds us, of people that we may have worked with in the past that we could see in those characters. But I think if we're honest, it might remind us a little bit of ourselves in, in, in some respects. Um, fact of the matter is, is many people know what it's like to work with a demeaning and a demanding boss um, or work next to someone who makes weird noises and does pranks in the office and locks up phones or does whatever. Um, know what it's like to have turf wars or face deadlines that are uh, impossible to meet. Uh, boring meetings, deal with difficult people. We've all been stressed out by our work perhaps at some time or another uh, and maybe even wondered why we're there. Uh, many people think work is absurd. They spend hours in a place that they don't want to be with people that they don't necessarily like, uh, doing a job they don't enjoy for a paycheck that they think is never enough. When you hear the word job, what comes to mind? Some might think, well, I'm glad I'm off tomorrow. Don't have to go to work. Some might think, I'm glad I have a job. Others might think, uh, I wish I had a job. Um, some are retired, and you think maybe your days of working are over. Well, stay tuned. Don't, don't, don't check out yet. Um, a man went with his wife to the doctor. And after examining, the wife had some issues. And uh, at the end of uh, the... At the, end of the uh, the physical, wherever it was he was doing, he asked the wife to leave the room because he wanted to talk privately to the husband. And he said, husband, your wife is in dire straits. She is suffering from a severe stress disorder right now. She can recover, but here's what you need to do. Every morning you need to get up and fix her a healthy breakfast, and then a nutritious lunch, and then a very good dinner. You're going to need to do all the cleaning. You're going to need to do the laundry. You're going to need to do the dishes. You're going to need to take care of the kids. You're going to need to make sure they're ready and up and dressed and ready to go to school. Don't bring her any of your problems. Don't stress her out. Speak kindly to her at all times. And if you do that for a year, she will definitely improve and get better. Well, they left and on the way home, the wife turned to the husband and said, what did the doctor say? And the husband said, you're going to have a really bad year. <laughs> well, 
Well, the moral of that joke is, is nobody works harder than stay-at-home moms. And that's the point that I bring to you. So they're included in the, in the workers or work that we're talking about today, too. Um, obviously, it seems like there's some confusion about work. On one extreme, we've got workaholics. And then the other, there's a majority of people that hold to the philosophy is the best day on the golf course or the best day on the lake is, or the worst day on the golf course and the worst day on the lake is better than the best day at the office. Um, you may have been told sometime at one point or another by a coworker, slow down, you're making us look bad. Well, can you imagine going to work each day with a sense of expectancy instead of dread and arriving home at the end of the day feeling satisfied? Can you imagine your work making you a better person instead of a bitter person? Can you imagine your work deepening your faith instead of undermining your faith? Can you imagine your work making a real difference in the world and having an impact and internally on other people's lives? Work done properly, work done, understood, and performed under God's, perfection, under God's perspective leads to perfection. Let's get to the heart of the matter, and let's try to understand why God wills work. Uh, if you've got God's word, tur turn to 1 Thessalonians. Um, I added some stuff late when I turned in the manuscript for this. Um, and some of it might not show up on the screen, but if you're in Thessalonians, you'll find the bulk of the scripture. Uh, when I thought about work and, and bringing a message, what, what I was led to was the letters of Paul to Thessalonica. Because there was an inherent problem at the church at Thessalonica. Let me read verse 9 to 12 right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Well, the early church at Thessalonica had problems, all the early churches did. Um, but particularly in, in Thessalonica, when Paul was there and he taught them end times theology and the return of Jesus Christ, they took it, they heard it, but because of that and their belief the, of the immediate return of Christ, some of them quit working. Imagine that. Well, there's an improper perspective about work. Why did they quit work? Well, they quit work because they had the wrong perspective about why God wills work and how important work is. We need to understand God wills work. And why does God will work? Why does God will work? There we go. I got it right. Well, since we're so confused about what the perspective is, we need to understand, and I think there are three salient points that I think we need to understand of why God wills work. And the first reason why God wills work is that, and it may seem obvious to us, is God wills work is that by working, we provide for our legitimate needs. Makes sense. That seems to be the most obvious one. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, God imposed on the human race 
a condition of hardship that continually reminds us things are not well in this world while there is sin in this world. There's a hardship that he gave in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. It reads, uh, the Lord said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you shall eat of it the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and ye shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face ye shall eat bread till you return to the ground. But before the fall, man lived in a garden where God provided food on trees. Life was good. All Adam and Eve had to do was pick and eat. The essence of their work was not sustenance of life. They had their free time to do creative other things. That, that God wanted them to do to tend to the garden. Um, there was no anxiety about providing food and, and clothing. But when Adam and Eve chose to be self-reliant and rejected God's guidance and provision, God gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them self-reliance. And that was a bad thing. That is always a bad thing when it comes to God's perspective and God's will and God's way in our, in our lives. So because of that, God imposed this condition uh, that reminds us that we have to toil and we have to work. And it's by the sweat of our brow, the sweat of our face, and thorns and thistles, and they traded trees of fruit for fields of wheat, and struggles, and plowing, and just a lot of hard work. And what made it doubly burdensome was now they had to do this just to survive because they wanted to be self-reliant. And that's the judgment that God puts upon us many times when we ask for things of such. And so there was droughts and there were famines and there were all kinds of things that made it even doubly hard. So this was part of the curse. Well, what about this curse, if you will? Does that mean work is a curse? Well, that's the wrong way to look at it. Some might think it is, and some might call it a curse, but not from God's perspective, it's not. Um, God is tempered to curse, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, did God lift the, cor the curse? Yes, but not all the way. I'll give you an example, by the way, of death. We think of death, and we know that Jesus Christ has come, he suffered and he's died, and he's risen again. And by accepting the work of Christ and what he has done for us, and having faith in his work completing and defeating sin, and enabling those that trust in him, having been forgiven of their sin, have eternal life, it changes our perspective. And we no longer have the sting of death or the fear of death, but it's still here. Up until the end of the age, we are going to die. But for those who are his believers, he's given eternal life. So the curse has been tempered with, so to speak, if I can use that word, but it hasn't gone away. It's the same way with work. Now we have to labor and we have to toil and we have to sweat and we have to work. We have to do it every day and do it over and over and over again. But God, because he's come, 
And he's shown us his grace. And he's shown us his mercy. If we look at work in the same perspective that we're going to see, we're going to see the opportunity that he set before us to use our work as a means of grace and to be his champion. Sting of death is gone. I don't fear dying. I just don't want it to hurt. I have to work, but I see it as an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity to show what the gospel is about by the way that I work, and we're going to get into that. So it's with necessity that we work to provide our needs. Matthew 6, 25, and part of 32, Christ tells us, Don't be anxious about your life, uh, what you eat or what you shall drink, about your body, what you shall put on. Your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But seek first his kingdom, and then in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. We are told to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, God does not intend his children to be burdened by the frustrations of work. It's temporary. There will be a time when he will be the sustainer and our only sustainer that we will need. The curse will be entirely lifted. How do we function until then? Well, he still aims to lift that burden, even, in, even though it is a burden in this physical age that we live in. Um, so let's, let's just jump to the next. God has not completely removed the curse from this age, but for believers, he will do it in the next. That's a perspective that we should carry with us. First reason God uh, wills work is that by working, we provide for our legitimate needs. The second reason God wills work is that by working, we provide for the needs of those who can't provide for their own. The promise that if you sweat, you will eat is not absolute. As we've seen in the news, hurricanes can hit a town. Tornadoes can hit a town. Fire can damage homes. Thieves can break in online and steal. You can become disabled, which will reduce your earning power. There are myriad ways, and that is all part of the fall, if you will, also. Uh, that's that's, that is all part of the curse. But God knows our struggles and he knows our challenges. And he knows that he's given and he's blessed many of us, able body, mentally able and capable, to work. And by so working, in many cases, he's given us an abundance. And what we're challenged with and what we're charged with in 1 Timothy 5 and 8, Paul speaks to children and grandchildren regarding the aged widows. If anyone was not provided for his relatives, and especially for his own family, he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In Acts 20, 35, Paul refers to his own manual labor and says, In all things I have shown you that by so toiling one must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to, to give than to receive. And then Ephesians 4, 28 Paul says, don't steal work. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
being honest, doing honest work with his hands so that he may be able to give to those in need. So to work, to be able to give to others, to give to others, in our society, that thought is utterly revolutionary. But can you see what it does? It takes our whole life, including our secular jobs, and it turns it into a work of grace. And to think of it in the perspective as being a work of grace. To work, we have an opportunity to give. Because that's what it means to walk by faith. Our, those, that, those that call themselves children of God, those that call themselves believers and disciples of Christ, within our soul, within our spirit, within our being, we crave and we thirst opportunity to show God's grace. God's grace is imparted to us. God's grace inflows into us. And in the overrun and in the overflow, that grace shines to other people. So it is with our money. So it should be with the incomes that we earn through our jobs to see it as an opportunity to meet the needs of others that can't do it through calamities or whatever the case may be. It's opportunity for us to show that work is love. That's a different perspective. That's one that is not often shared and probably one of the reasons why our perspective on, on work gets so twisted. Our faith is addicted for opportunities to show the grace of God. And we have that opportunity by our jobs, and we should always be thankful for them because of that opportunity. So the second reason why God wills work is that by working, we provide for the needs of those that can't provide for their own, and when considered properly, work is a way of love. And the third reason why God wills work is to build bridges for the gospel. That just flows. Do you remember your first job? Do you remember over your lifetime how many jobs that you've had? Well, if I tried to count them, I don't think I have enough fingers that would be left over. All of them made an impression on me on some way or another. And my memories have them, some good, some are bad. Some people that I worked with were really hard workers. Others we might call slackers. I don't know, for lack of a better term, we might call slackers. It didn't work very hard at all. And working as a young person, I learned to work from other people. And all those people had an influence on me early on in an early age when I began working as a teenager. Let me read to you uh, a little bit from back to 2 Thessalonians. I don't think this is going to be on the screen. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. Uh, we'll get that whole perspective, but there's, some, there's a particular verse of Scripture that I want, want us to focus on uh, as we consider building bridges for the gospel. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from a brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was because we do not have the, and it was not because we do not have the right, but uh, do not have the right, I need to slow down, 
but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone was not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now we talked about that a little bit, the endemic problem of thinking Christ is going to come back imminently so we don't have to work. That's going into that with the wrong perspective about work uh, and why God wills work. We know that, we understand that. But there's some things in that passage of Scripture that might seem harsh to us, where in verse 6 he commands them in the name of the Lord to keep away from any brother who is walking or is not working. And then that if they're not going to work, they shouldn't eat. Well, that seems pretty harsh too. What was Paul intending there? Well, he was trying to bring restoration because he also says later in that passage of Scripture, treat them as a brother. Just don't associate, don't do what they're doing. But the attempt was what Paul was seeking to do. And it came up three times. It came up the first time he visited. He wrote a letter to him. The first letter in Thessalonians talked about this. And then in the second letter, the same thing. There's almost as much about work in Thessalonians as there is about end times theology. Uh, that's how big a problem that it was there. And so what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to restore those people to understand what is the correct perspective of work. You want to eat? you got to work. That's the first thing that we talked about. Working, we meet, we meet our needs. Um, so the thing I want to focus on in verse 7 is, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not burden any of you. It's not because we do not have the right but to give ourselves an example to you. So Paul is clear where to work, and he sets himself up as a good example to do so. Paul, the church planner, when he was there, um, he worked and he toiled. He was a tent maker. Uh, he'd spend his time earning his living, making tents and selling them. Uh, and then the rest of the time, the most of the time that he was there, being a church planner and being the master church planner, uh, he would work in developing and building those churches. There is a big difference between being a church planner and being a pastor of an established church. Now, there's some overlay there. Uh, there are things to common to both. But the most important thing to understand with a church planner is, is starting out, there are no resources. You're going from a dead start. And when I read this passage of Scripture, one person immediately comes to mind. Actually, two people. Ricardo and Sonia. And the sacrifice that they have made to start Mission Esperanza. Ricardo is that model that I see in Paul. He works. His job is extremely challenging and demanding from a time perspective. But yet... He's involved in working in that work and starting Mission Esperanza. And he does so because he believes that's where God wants him to be in serving the Lord. It's a hard job. It is a difficult job. When you see Ricardo or Sonia, let them know you appreciate them. Just say thanks. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, they don't do it for, for any, any of that type of gratification, but they do it to serve the Lord. But letting them know that at least hopefully gives them some encouragement because they do, uh, they do face some challenges. There's, there's no doubt about it. And they, they, they deserve our love and our encouragement there. 
So when we work in reliance of God's power and according to his pattern of excellence, his glory is made known and our joy is increased. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his image, and the image image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Since our being created in God's image leads directly to our opportunity to subdue the earth, to take God's creation, God created something out of nothing. God assigns us as his deputy to now form and shape his creation and in God's way to do it with creativity and to do it with excellence. And that's another concept that kind of goes over our heads sometimes in doing our job and in doing it with excellence. And it is a mandate. Work is part of the creation mandate. It's, it's our contribution to God's amazing creation. Work's a gift from God, and we labor for the love of our Lord. We, we, put the, we put on display the genius of God who created us individually, all of us to reflect his glory, and it all happens in, in concert working together, all with all of us different gifted abilities and talents, all to bring glory to him. So we should thank God for our jobs. A beaver subdues his surroundings and shapes a dam for good purposes. He builds a house. He no doubt enjoys what he does, as probably does a bee or a hummingbird or whatever. They work hard and they work with diligence. Um, so what's the difference between a human being at work and a beaver at work? Well, or that matter, a bee or a hummingbird. Well, we work hard. We subdue their surroundings. But the difference with us, with humans, as God's deputy, is... We have a moral perpetuity, if you will. We have a moral responsibility to make decisions. And some of those decisions that we make in the workplace honor God or they do not honor God. But we've got a moral responsibility as being part of the creation mandate, being part of his children created to work within his creation to subdue it to be creative with it, all of it for a specific purpose. When we do so, when we work in excellence, when we work within creation, we build bridges. When we work with excellence, when we work creatively, our ditches need to be dug correctly. Our plumbing fittings need not to leak. Our surgeons must perform clean and cleanly and with precision. Everything that we do should be done with excellence. Because in so doing, in subduing and the creation mandate, we display to the rest of the world what God's grace is all about. And within, they can see God's excellence through God's grace. When we work in excellence with his power and reliance on his power, according to his pattern, his glory is made known. 
This is how God wills work as a way of building bridges for the gospel. When we work, we're usually in the world. We rub shoulders with with non-believers, unbelievers. Uh, And when we work, they look and they see and they observe, knowing that the gospel resides within us. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Paul exhorts believers to aspire quietly and to mind your own affairs, not be busybodies, which was another thing that they were doing. To work with your own hands and as we charge you so that you may command respect of outsiders and be dependent upon nobody. There's a very close connection between the way that we do our work and the attitude that unbelievers will have towards that gospel that we're supposed to display. In conclusion, God's will in this age is that his people will be scattered like salt in various vocations throughout the world, using the gifted abilities that he's given us. If we're mentally capable and physically capable, we should work, relying on that power and that pattern of excellence. We need to believe that work, our work, really matters to God. We know at the end we're going to give an account for our time, talents, and abilities, and the way that we've used our resources. And I believe that work is going to be one of those things because of the opportunity that is set before us. Many of the people with with whom we work are never going to come to a church service like this. Some will. We hope they will. We need to invite them. But generally speaking, the general populace, they won't. And they won't turn on the TV and hear the gospel. Well, what does that leave? That leaves our opportunity to build bridges for the gospel. And in so doing, by displaying God's excellence and by displaying his grace and meeting others' needs and working proficiently, when people look at us, the odd thing is, is we build our witness and we build our testimony. And that testimony can be so strong that the opportunities arise that people come and ask us about our faith. That's what a strong testimony will do. And we have that opportunity to provide that testimony in the workplace. Labor Day comes once a year. Happy Labor Day. Many are going to gather for picnics maybe, or I don't know, it might be hot out today, or barbecues, whatever the case may be. And there's not a thought given about why we work or how we work. And what's behind all that? And the opportunity is set before us. So let's, let's take some time right now as we close. Uh, let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray. And let's, let's ask ourselves in meditation, how are we doing? How are we doing when your coworkers see our life and the way that we work? Do they sense a display of God's grace? Are there things that we can do that we need to change to procure the opportunity to display God's grace that sets before us? That's unique, and the only reason it's unique is because we haven't considered it. But it's right there in front of us. So let's pray for just a moment or two and just a little bit of time, and let's, let's think about what can we do? What can we do in God's will to be that champion in the workplace?